I guess Maddox wants to sing another one. Hey, I want to start by just saying it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to, to be the pastor of this church and to stand up every week and preach God's Word to people from all over the world. It is, um, I can't express what an honor it is and what a joy it is for me. It's the best job in the world. I wouldn't want any other job. I wouldn't want to be anyone else except standing here preaching the truth of God's Word in a redeemed garage to a group of internationals. It's just, um, it's a great blessing. And I sometimes fail to share that with you. I've shared this with you before. Um, Gary has probably heard me say it before. Maybe Elaine. Um, maybe Charlotte, I don't know. But I think it's important to memorize Scripture. How many of you memorize Scripture? Any of you work on that? I think it's important to, you know, to have God's Word hidden in your heart. And um, the older I get, the harder it is. But I've been working really hard on a verse, and uh, I want to, I want to, I want to show off a little bit tonight. So, Gary, do you know what verse I memorized? You you may remember. You've probably heard me say it before. Um, if you want to check me, you can go to First Thessalonians. 5.16, and see if I get it right. But here it is. You ready? Rejoice always. <laughs> Good, huh? I know what you're thinking. <laughs> you're thinking, whatever we're paying this guy, it's too much. Yeah, it's short. That's one reason I memorized it. But the principal reason I memorized it is that's who God is. We cannot not rejoice always. If we've truly met Him, if we've truly encountered Him, we cannot not rejoice always. It's who God is. It's what God has done. It's what God is doing. It's what God will do for a billion eternities. It's what Peter has been saying to us in this beautiful prologue. The first nine verses of verse. Peter, our God is a God of infinite and omnipotent joy. We cannot not rejoice always, even on the hard day. This is what Peter has been saying as he writes this letter. You know the history, I trust. He's writing to a group of people who have been undergoing a fierce persecution. So he writes them to encourage them. The dictionary defines joy like this. A condition or feeling of great pleasure, happiness, and delight. Now, human joy is contingent on circumstance, right? If circumstances are going well, well, that makes me happy. If circumstances aren't going so well, then I'm not so happy. But what I want to say to you is divine joy is not like that. Divine joy is completely different. God is happy because God is God. Amen? I hope you have this view of God. God's happiness, His joy is not circumstantial. Divine joy is not circumstantial. It's just who He is. It's just simply who He is. Pleasure, happiness, and delight are God. Joy is innate in God. God rejoices always. Why? Because He had a good day? No, because He's awesome. And He's been in perfect fellowship with the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Holy Spirit, I know that's an old word. 
Yeah, I'm old. Sometimes it comes out. The old stuff comes out. Perfect love, perfect fellowship, perfect communion, perfect intimacy in the Trinity. Infinitely happy, infinitely full God. It begs the question, why does God create? Why does God create if He's infinitely happy? Certainly, He doesn't create from need. He creates from... Anyone want to tell me? He creates from fullness. He's so full. It's, it's like a controlled explosion of His fullness and His happiness and His joy and His delight. And He speaks billions of galaxies into existence by the Word of His power. This great God. Why does He create? He creates. We know the short answer, right? As biblical uh, Christians, as Bible believers, what's the short answer? Somebody want to tell me? Why does God create? Because He's lonely and He needs a friend. Wrong! You hear that in Sunday school sometimes. Wrong! Why does God create? For His glory. That's always the short answer. For His glory. I remember her. She was here once before, a couple times before. What's your name? I forgot. Thanks. Thanks. It's good to see you. Good to see you, man. Um, for His glory. Now, there's a lot more that can be said there, and I don't have time to develop that, but I do want to share with you what John Piper says about that. And just bear with me for a few minutes. I'm going to read this quote. It's one of my favorite all-time quotes. I read this quote back in 1996, laying on my bed, and two years later I was in seminary. Some people think there's a connection. But anyway, listen to what Piper says. In creation, God goes public with the glory that reverberates joyfully between the Father and the Son. Isn't that beautiful? Of course, he's just stealing this from Jonathan Edwards, okay? There's something about the fullness of God's joy that it inclines it to overflow. So the infinite, pardon me, the eternal happiness of the triune God spills over in the work of creation and redemption. All His works are simply the overflow of His infinite exuberance for His own excellence. How can you not love that sentence? Creation and redemption are an overflow of His infinite exuberance for His own excellence. Beloved, that's the biblical God. And He commands us, rejoice always we can. Because He is who He is. This is what Peter has been saying to us in the first nine verses. Yes, God says rejoice always and He means it. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not advice. If you call yourself a Christian tonight, if you're born again, God expects you to rejoice always, particularly in the hard, in the hard thing. On the hard Day. The Christian is to be seriously joyful and joyfully serious, right? Isn't that perfect? That's who we are as sons and daughters of the King. You guys know the great parable that Matthew 13, 44, and there's several parables in that great chapter of Matthew 13 talking about true conversion. And you remember the guy? He found a treasure in a field. What did he do? He sold all that he had, all that, he had that he might uh, owned that field. It's just a picture. And why, why did he do it? What was his motivation? Does anyone remember? From joy. This is true conversion from joy. 
From joy he sold all that he had, that he might own that field. It's a parable. It's about, be, it's about being in relationship with Jesus Christ. So joy is the root of biblical faith and joy is the fruit of biblical faith. I'm going to say it again. Joy is the root of biblical faith. It flows from God and joy is the fruit of biblical faith. It's what God the Holy Spirit has been saying to us in these first nine verses of First Peter, again, the people that Peter is writing to, they're going through a fierce persecution. And he's reminding these first century Christians and all 21st century Christians that as we go through the hard thing, we're supposed to remember how awesome our God is. We're supposed to remember how awesome our salvation is. We're supposed to remember how awesome our inheritance is. And then we are to rejoice. Even if we're weeping, even if we're in the midst of mourning and grief and sorrow and affliction and pain, we rejoice in our great God. Our joy cannot be touched by anything in this life. Yes, our pain is real. We talked about it last week. But our God in His joy transcends even the grave, beloved. Even the grave. Every trial we will walk through because our God is who He is. Every day, but particularly on the hard day, this is what Peter's been saying to him. He says, hey, remember, you're foreknown. You're foreloved. You're chosen of God. You're redeemed by the blood of the Son. You're regenerated and sanctified by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's what God has been saying to us. He says, remember who I am. Remember how I've loved you. Remember who you are. Remember that you are mine. On the hard day, don't forget these things. And then rejoice. We saw it last week. We talked about, why does Peter break out in worship? He's writing to people who are in terrible trial. And he just breaks out in doxology. He breaks out in worship. He can't help it. (laughs) It's what Christians do. As we begin to think deeply about God, as we begin to think deeply about what He's done for us, as we begin to think deeply about what's in store for us for all eternity, beloved, we can walk through any trial. God says, remember how awesome I am and rejoice. Remember all the things I've purchased for you. Remember all the promises I've made to you. And rejoice. Beloved, I want to encourage you tonight. To rejoice. I saw something in my study that, that really was fascinating to me. I looked at some of the synonyms of the word joy. One of the synonyms which I didn't at first understand was fruition. Fruition. And the definition of fruition is this the agreeable emotion accompanying the expectation. Listen, are you expecting good things from God on the hard day? Do you expect it? Are you expecting it? Or are you like the unbeliever? Are you just simply looking at the problem? You know, we talked about this at Y Bible study Thursday night. You know, a billion things can be right in your life, but you're complaining about the one thing that's not exactly as you would have it. Isn't that the way human nature is? God is, lavishes us with blessing and blessing and blessing. We cannot count them. And we're bemoaning the one problem that we have. What are we supposed to do with that problem? We're not supposed to whine about it. Supposed to give it up to God and see what He wants to do in it and through it and through us in the trial. Fruition. It means completion. I love this. It means completion. I think this is what Peter is saying to us. 
Peter says, I know it's hard, but remember the expectation that you have in Christ. And he says, remember the completion of your salvation. It may be hard today, but tomorrow's going to be awesome. I still remember, I told you last week, my dad died last year. And I was with him when he died. And I felt joy because he knows the Lord. And when I think about my father being in the presence of Jesus, it takes my breath away when I think deeply about it. You know, I'm not just talking about in some academic sense. I'm talking about thinking deeply about my father gazing upon the infinite beauty of Christ. It takes my breath away because I will soon be there. I will soon be there. Don't you dare let some trial, temporal trial, steal your joy, Christian. Don't you dare. Your God is God. And your God has saved you in the most remarkable way. And our inheritance, as we talked about last week, is in fact God Himself. I love how Jesus said it in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that, does anybody remember? My joy, Jesus says, divine joy will be in you and your joy will be made full. Is that not awesome? Divine joy is coming our way. And if we're born again, we're already, we've already begun to experience it because the Holy Spirit has, has regenerated us and He's indwelling us. Jesus says, I say these things that my joy might be in you. That my Father's infinite exuberance might be in you. That you would have the right expectation. You would think deeply about the fruition of your salvation. This is the breathtaking reality of biblical Christianity. The omnipotent joy of our Redeemer progressively becomes our joy. <laughs> Obviously, the more you're in the Word, the more you're serving the church, the more you're involved in using your gifts, the more you're walking in obedience, the deeper your joy will be. You say, well, I'm a Christian, but I have no joy. That's your fault. That's not God's fault. It's your fault. If you have no joy somewhere, you left off obeying and following Christ. Somewhere you've left off. Somewhere you've become distracted with sin. Some, something shiny in the world has captured your attention. And you become more interested in that than you become in God. It can be 10,001 different things. But if you've lost your joy, beloved, it is not the Lord's fault. It is your fault. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. Uh, and I looked, up this, uh, I looked this up in the Greek, this greatly rejoice. Uh, one translation renders it like this, Be exceedingly glad. We are exceedingly glad. Another Greek scholar translated it like this, be jubilant and exuberant with your gladness. Don't you love that? He's just trying to pile on superlatives here. Be jubilant with exuberant gladness. I love that. And what is he talking about? He says, in this you greatly rejoice. What's well, all the things we've been talking about in the first five verses? So all that Peter has been saying, we greatly rejoice. And I mentioned some of these things earlier that we are, we are aliens. We are chosen. We are foreknown. We are foreloved. We are uh, uh, redeemed by the Son. We are sanctified by the Spirit. We, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Our inheritance is God Himself. It is imperishable and undefiled. 
Peter says, because of all these things, we are jubilant with exuberant gladness. Our God is God. We are His people. And nothing can change that. Who can separate us from the love of God? Someone tell me. No one. Nobody. No thing. No one. Basta. It can't happen. It can't happen. He's holding us with His omnipotent hand. Beloved, you are Batman in the world. I mean, spiritually, in a spiritual sense. You have license. You are a child of God. You don't have to live small. You don't have to live afraid. In fact, it's a blasphemous kind of thing to say, I'm a born-again disciple of Jesus, and then live about that big. I think it it's, uh, borders on, on blasphemy. And did you notice here in verse 6, even though now, we greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Necessary. What kind of necessity is this? Why is this necessary? Well, I, it, should, it should suffice to say because God says so. You know, that, you know I, I don't get away with that answer very often in the young adult group. Because God says so. But you know, really, ultimately... If we can't explain, obviously we should explain. But ultimately, if God says so, that should be enough. You know, and as we've been bumping up against some of these hard things, these mysterious things, these weighty doctrines that we've been talking about the last few weeks, you know, sometimes you get to the place and it's beyond your two and a half pounds of gray matter and we just defer to God, right? We just defer to God. This is the right attitude to have. But God says these trials are necessary. Why? Because He loves you. He is the master artisan. He will always create what? A masterpiece. And what was it that Blessing and Quasi taught us several weeks ago at Praise Night? Does anybody remember? God doesn't make what? He's going to turn you into a masterpiece. That's why His hands are on the clay. He's going to bring you into conformity with His Son. And we know what that great text in Philippians chapter 1, I forget what verse. He will complete the good work He's begun in you. And because He loves you, His hands are always on you. And sometimes He presses down hard. Sometimes He presses down hard. I like what C.S. Lewis says, God takes great pains with His children and He spares them no pain that you might be in full conformity with His Son. He will break you from every adultery and every addiction. As one theologian says, that's what the trial is about. That's one of the th reasons the trial comes. To break you from your adulteries and your addictions. Anything you love more than God. We know biblically what that means. That is an idol. Every Christian will pass through the refiner's fire. Job said it perfectly. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as junk. Right? What did Job say? I shall come forth as gold. You know the gold process. You know how it works. It's in the fire and the, the dross is burned off. This is part of what God is doing. When the trial comes, His hands are always on us. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish minister in the 17th century. He was imprisoned for preaching, believe it or not. 
But while he was there, he made a discovery about true Christian happiness. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to read you a quote, okay? I want you to listen to this. Rutherford writes, If God had told me some time ago that He was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world and then told me that He should begin the process by crippling me in all my limbs and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing His purpose. And yet, how is His wisdom manifest even in this? Now listen. Listen to this. I love these last few sentences. For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps, and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and throwing open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. Do you understand? Do you understand the analogy here? Looking at the little candles, the little lamps, Focusing on those, loving those, as opposed to the light that can only come from heaven. I love how John Piper comments on Samuel Rutherford's writing here. John Piper says, Oh, how I pray when God in His mercy begins to blow out my lamps, I will not curse the wind. Do you understand? Do you understand? When God blows out my little lamp that I love more than Him, or I'm tempted to love more than Him. I will not curse the wind. That is the mercy of God. That you might know true joy. <laughs> that you might know true intimacy in Him. As I've been saying to you for the last several weeks, when the trial comes, we're not supposed to be surprised. I tested you last week and you failed miserably. So I expect someone to answer me this week. Or there'll be another bad grade in your file. I tell this to Karen all the time, but she doesn't care. She says, where's my file? I said, don't worry about your file. Because I always tell her, I'm going to put a note in your file. She says, I don't care. Put a note in my file. I don't even think I have a file. Anyway, it's a joke. Okay. Uh, when the trial comes, we're not supposed to be surprised. We're supposed to be... Who said it? Quasi. Good job. We're supposed to be ready. We're supposed to be ready. We're not supposed to be shocked that a hard thing has come to us. If we actually read our Bibles, if we actually open them and read them, we understand that hard things are always coming to God's people. We are not health, wealth, and prosperity. That is a false gospel. That is a pseudo-gospel. I like what Piper says about it. He says, I abominate it! Which means I hate it. It gets people focused on the blessing and not the blessor. It gets people loving the blessing more than loving the one who gives the blessing. Beloved, that's not biblical. It's simply not biblical. We're not supposed to curse the wind that blows out our temporal lamps. We're supposed to thank God. We're supposed to thank God for it. For now we will know Him more deeply. It was Job's confession. You guys remember. Job's confession at the end of the book. You know, what happened in the midst of Job's loss and grief and suffering and pain and affliction? What happened? What was the principal event? What was the primary event? During the middle of, of Job's suffering, what happened to Job? Anybody remember? God came to him. You remember? God came to Job. Beloved, if the trial is here, God is coming to you. The trial is always a God encounter. Don't bemoan 
the trial. Don't get have a pity party about the trial. It, I'm not saying we deny the pain. I'm not saying that. We don't deny the pain. We feel the pain. But we give it to the Lord. And we know His hands are on us. Everything that comes into the believer's life has passed through the hands of God. He is a sovereign God or He is no God. Which one do you want? He's a sovereign God or He's no God. The biblical God is a sovereign God. Jehovah is a sovereign God. God came to Job. And I'm going to read to you Job 42.5 from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. It's known as the message. But Job said, I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Don't you love that? I think that's so pertinent in this modern era. I think there are many people who call, them Christ, call themselves Christians. And they're living off of a rumor of God. Listen to what he says. I admit I once lived by rumors of you, but now I have first-hand knowledge. My eyes and my ears have seen and heard you. This is what God does on the hard day. He comes to His people. It's what He's always done. And if you're a Christian, that's what He'll do in your life. He hasn't, the hard thing doesn't mean He's abandoned you. The hard thing means He's coming to you. And He's burning off the dross. And He will bring you out as fine gold. He will bring you out as fine gold. More conformed to the intimacy of His Son. What does James 1-2 say? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. What? What? You know, if you pay attention to what you're reading in the Bible, sometimes it's like, what? Consider it joy! Now, how does God have license to say that to us? Well, we've talked about it already because He is the fountain of all joy. And oh, guess what? He's coming to you in the trial. This is one reason you can consider it joy. Because if you're in the midst of a trial, God is coming to you. I love this Greek word here in that James 1-2 passage. This, this word translated consider in the English there in verse 2, it carries the meaning of having authority over or to rule over. This is what the Holy Spirit has been saying to us in the first nine verses of 1 Peter. God is commanding us to let our joy have authority over our trials. Why? Because we're super-duper Christians? No. Because our God is awesome. And our God is a promise keeper. And our God is coming to us. And nothing can separate us from Him and from all the things He's done in our behalf and the promises that He has made to us. Beloved, our heaven view is supposed to dominate our world view. And I'm going to challenge every one of you in here. Is that true for you? Does your heaven view dominate your world view? Or do you have it upside down? Does your world view dominate your view of heaven? God means for His children to think forward. Oh, it's a hard day? Think forward. Again, the unbeliever, all he can do is look at the hard thing. He just looks at it. And he obsesses with it. And he gets in a, you know, he, 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 gets in a, uh, he has a pity party about it. He gets a pout going. He feels sorry for himself. He makes himself miserable. He makes everyone around him miserable. But the Christian... Listen, beloved, when the hard day comes, that's your time to evangelize everyone in your life. Because everyone's watching you. If you profess to be a Christian, 
<laughs> if you profess to be a Christian, they're going to watch you. Do you really believe that stuff? Do you really believe your God's good? The cancer is here. Do you believe God's good? Yes, He's still good. He's doing something mysterious in my life. He's still God. He is still good. We don't look at the trial. What does, what does a Christian do? We look through it. Is that what you do? Is that what you do? You look through the trial? You look all the way into eternity. You look all the way into eternity. We don't look at it. Yes, it's there. We feel the pain. It's hard. The sorrow. The grief. We feel every bit of it. But we look through it. We look through it and we see and we gaze upon our great God. Beloved, this isn't just pretty theology. God means for us to own these things and to live these things. Just a short, brief survey. God came to Abraham on Mount Moriah. Amen? Job. God came to Job in his loss. God came to Shadrach and the boys in the fiery furnace. God came to Stephen as he was being stoned. God came to Paul with his thorn in the flesh. I love what David Paulison says. He's a, an American theologian. He says, we are 100% certain to suffer and Christ is 100% certain to meet us there. Somebody's got to say amen. He will meet you there. It is a divine appointment. This is not bad luck. It is a divine appointment. It hurts. It's a divine appointment. God is coming to you. We need to believe these things, beloved. We need to believe these things. I love what Piper says. I know according to a lot. I can't help it. He just keeps saying cool stuff. But he says, John Piper adds, God hasn't simply allowed this. He has designed. If we're going to be biblical, we have to understand this is what the Bible says. God loves us so much. He's not going to let any trial befall you that He hasn't planned perfectly for you and that will not render you up more in conformity with His beloved Son. The Holy Spirit is explicit over in 1 Peter 4.19. Uh, we'll get to it in some maybe a week or so, or several weeks or a month, whenever we get there. But the Holy Spirit says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. We're supposed to understand that if the trial is here, God is here. We don't deny the pain. We just understand what it's about. We feel the pain. And the believer, he's clueless. It's just pain. But for the Christian, we understand what it's about. God has come to us. You remember, it made me think of John 11. You guys know the great text, right? John 11. Um, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. What? So, what? He tarried three more days where He was. Or was it two more days? Anyway, He's tarried some. And Lazarus died. He loved them so he let Lazarus die. He let Martha, Mary, and Lazarus go through this trial. Why? Someone tell me. Because he's negligent. 
He's not a good God. He's not a faithful God. He didn't care for them. The Bible says He loved them so. Beloved, we're supposed to believe this. We're supposed to believe this. We're supposed to love this. Verse 7, You may be distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. I love what John MacArthur, a famous preacher in the States, says about this. He says, The Christian's joy comes not in spite of the trial, but because of it. There's two reasons for that. One is God's coming. God is coming. MacArthur is saying, you know, we essentially find out who we are in the trial and what we really believe. If our Christianity is a facade, when it gets hard, it will fall away. We will be unmasked as a counterfeit. It's what Jesus talked about in the parable of the, of the soils. You remember the rocky soil guy. When it got hard, what, what happened? It says immediately he fell away. So what is God doing in the trial? One thing He's doing is proving the genuineness of our faith. This is one thing God is doing. The joy we discover in the midst of the trial is the joy of knowing our faith is genuine. It is not counterfeit. It is not bogus. It is not a sham. It is real. This happened to me, beloved. I've lived this. You know, it's good to have an old pastor because he's lived through some stuff. 17 years ago, I went through a very hard, painful, emotionally disturbing, I mean, it was just a dark providence in my life. I was just numb and dazed. I was lost for a time in the turmoil and the upheaval and the pain. I still remember running into a friend of mine at a store and he said, Jim, how's it going? And I said, Satan is kicking my hind parts. Because we know the story Satan asked to sift Peter. And you know what it means to be sifted according to the Scripture. What Satan attempts to do is overthrow the faith of those who profess to be Christians. And if you profess to be a Christian tonight, Satan is asking for you too. He wants to show the world that you only love Christ because it's good for business. Because you think He's a, a cosmic rabbit foot. Because you think He'll bless you if you go to church and throw money in the offering plate. That's the only reason. If it got really hard, you would abandon Christ. This is always Satan's accusation against the children of God. And while During my trial, there were times during which I began to wonder if my faith was genuine at all. I began to wonder, am I a rocky soil guy? Am I going to fall away? But I can tell you what I discovered. I discovered the same thing that Peter discovered. You remember what Jesus told Peter? He said, he says, you're about to go through a hard thing. But he said, does anybody remember? But Jesus says, I've prayed for you. Beloved, the Lord is holding us in the hard thing. I love this. This great, awesome, sovereign God is holding His people in the hard thing. Jesus says, I prayed for you. And He didn't say, if you come back, if you return... To your brothers, he says, when? The omnipotent prayers of the Son of God. 
Peter was uniquely qualified to a group of suffering Christians. He had been in the dark spot, the hard spot, and God had held him in the midst of it and brought him through. It's what God did for me 17 years ago. He held me and He brought me through. It wasn't pretty. I can tell you from my end, it wasn't pretty, but my faith stood the test. And I will tell you, that is joy! To come through the dark spot and be loving Christ, that is joy. I want to tell you, if you haven't gone through the hard spot yet, you will. It's coming. Don't be surprised. Be ready. Christian, I exhort you. Be ready. I love that what this says here. It says that our faith is going to be tested by fire there at the end of verse 7. May be, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, our faith will redound to the glory of Jesus, but He's talking about us here, beloved. It's clear in this verse, I read several excellent conservative commentaries because I was afraid to, to actually teach this until I was confident that it was true. But this is about our praise, our glory, our honor. It's the well done, good and faithful servant thing. All you got to do is read your Bible. Romans 2.29 The believer's praise is not from men, it's from God. Isn't that awesome? And I love 1 Peter 5.4 When Christ appears, you will receive the unfailing crown of glory. Yes. It can be mentioned, it can be referring to Jesus, but I also believe it's being referred to, the, the redeemed are being referred to here. Then you know that great text in John 17.20. Jesus prays for us and says, and He says, may all, may all uh, the believers be one even as the Father art in the Son and the Son is in the Father. May they, believers, also be in us the Trinity and the glory which Thou hast given Me, Jesus says, I give to them. Beloved, this is part of the inheritance that we have. It's awesome. I know we want to be careful about talking about receiving glory, but the Bible says that the redeemed will be rewarded. The redeemed will be honored. That's what the Lord is saying to us. And He will bestow glory on us. Jesus says, I give My glory. In some mysterious way, we will taste His glory. Beloved, God means for us to think forward. He means for us to, 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 be, you know, to be excited about all that He's prepared for us. It's supposed to change the way we live. It's supposed to change the way we go through the hard spot. Verse 8 and 9, very quickly. It's true, isn't it? It says, even though we have not seen Him, what? Someone tell me. Even though we have not seen Him, we are apathetic about Him. The Christian what? Loves we love Christ. We haven't seen Him. Now, there were many, many people in the, in the Gospels who, who saw Christ. They even saw His miracles. They even saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. But they didn't believe. I love what Piper says. I know he keeps saying cool stuff. He says, the Gospels are better than being there. We see Him in the Gospels. We see Him in the Word of God. And God does that 
That sovereign disclosure thing that we, we've talked about. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.6, let me just read it to you real quick. The Apostle Paul says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We don't see Him with our physical eyes. We see Him with our heart eyes. This is what God does for us as we come to His Word and study it, and we find Him to be the most beautiful, alluring, desirable, and compelling person we have ever met. And we discover that our heart is no longer ours. It belongs to Him. Beloved, this is biblical Christianity. It's not religion! You hear me say it all the time. Man, I get so tired. <laughs> when I go home, sometimes I like to visit around. And, I go, and sometimes I'll visit around. And you just go into these dead churches, man. It's just dead! And I'm saying, they do the gospel a favor if they would just shut this thing down. It's not dead religion, beloved. It's, it's, it's not dead religion. It's infinitely more. It's infinitely more than that. We are in love with Him. And knowing Him, loving Him, trusting Him, and walking with Him in perfect joy, and we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, Joy, look at what it says, joy above language, beyond human speech. It's unutterable joy. That's what Peter's been saying to us. We love Him. We believe Him. And we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So who remembers my memory verse? Anybody remember what my memory verse was? Will you? Will you? God means for you to. God says, I'm your God. I have loved you. I have saved you. I indwell you. I have caused you to be born again. I am your inheritance. Will you rejoice always? That's your job description as a Christian. So, if you're not big on memorizing Scripture, I give you mine. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Not only because it's short, but because you need it. And you need to live it. I'll close with the words of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 4.17-18 For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, they are eternal. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us when the hard day comes and we're preoccupied with the trial. We know what Your Word tells us. Sometimes it's hard because You love us. It's not because You don't. It's because You do. So Lord, I, I pray we would take that to heart. 
I pray we would actually believe the, the Word of God and we would, we would incarnate the Word of God and we would live the Word of God and, and, and it would be our evangelism as we go through the hard thing and everyone around us sees that we still delight in our awesome God. In the hard thing, we delight in our awesome God. When we can't cry one more tear, we delight in our awesome God with joy inexpressible. For He has saved us from what we deserve. We understand what we deserve. Condemnation. Because of our sin. But You have adopted us, Lord. And we are in awe of our great salvation. And we praise You, great God, that nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from this love that You have lavished upon us. Help us, Lord, to walk through the hard thing. Help us not to be surprised. I pray that we would be ready. I pray that we would have praise on our lips. And that we would remember how awesome You are. How awesome our salvation is. And how awesome our inheritance is. We pray all this in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.